0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 13 Tips to Heal Your Thyroid series, to improve your thyroid function. We're coming to you today with tip number seven. It's going to be a fun one. Tip number seven for supporting autoimmunity. We're going to go deep down the whole idea of autoimmunity, kind of what that means. We Talked about in prior episodes, the idea of you have Hashimoto's or associated with low thyroid function, then you have Graves associated with elevated thyroid function. And we'll explore from my clinical experience a key contributor to not only the diagnosis of autoimmunity because again a diagnosis is just what the medical community has established for insurance purposes to give you a a diagnosis b treatment to be able to bill that to insurance that's really the main reason for a diagnosis but to understand that your symptoms and how you feel and whether it be food sensitivities chemical sensitivities fatigue brain fog anxiety constipation these symptoms associated with thyroid and thyroid abnormalities can be supported can be helped without needing this formal diagnosis welcome to gut check radio the holistic health podcast where we explore the uniqueness of the human experience to help you navigate your health journey i'm nick belden a chiropractic physician and functional medicine practitioner and you all know what's coming next but the information provided in this podcast is for educational entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose cure or treat any disease and do not apply any of the information here without first speaking with your physician and I want to contrast these two pictures here. You guys are probably wondering why is there a snake, and then why is there a picture of someone on an email account on an iPad? Like, what what are the differences there? Many of you are familiar with this idea of the sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system, and the idea of you know fight or flight, rest and digest. You know, so many people out there saying you're too stressed. We talked about previously why well, it's not about too much stress; it's about the right kind of stress in the right environment, the right situation. And I think when most people say stress, they're really talking about what I like to call perceived stressors or emotional and psychological stressors in our environment. And these are only really deemed stressors in the context of ourselves. So it's very, a stressor is very relative to us. So for example, if some person sees a snake in the top left, someone gets incredibly stressed out and they maybe want to run away. They don't even want to look at it. They want to get as far away from that situation. Maybe they might even faint, which isn't really a stress response. It's more so of a, um, a fear response more so than anything else. Whereas someone, and I'm sure we all know someone loves snakes. They're the people who, when they go to zoos and exhibits, they want to have the snake draped around their neck because they love the experience of it. It makes them feel so alive and so here and so present. So for them, that perceived stress is nowhere near it is for the person who faints when they see a snake. And that used to be, you know, thousands of years ago, that that was one of the main stressors is encountering animals in the wild or organisms that you will not really know how to manage or how to deal with some people used to say lion or tiger, I use the picture of a snake, because a snake for a lot of people is a, a, a creature that they fear. But nowadays, our nervous system is almost being exposed to a similar level of threat and stress and fear from email. I was thinking about this just this morning, how so many people in the health and wellness community, are dialed in with their nutrition, dialed in with their exercise, and they're 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 eating what they think is the ancestral way of living, and they're lifting barefoot with kettlebells as as I love to do in a way that's considered ancestral. But then their work is on an iPad, their work is at a, is on a MacBook. I'm talking on a microphone. These are not ancestral. These are very new technological developments. And so I started thinking. I don't feel like we can demonize these non ancestral foods like sugar and flour and dairy and modern wheat. I understand why we demonize them, but it's almost not fair to demonize them when this technology of this microphone has been around less than dairy has. This laptop, this iPhone in the corner has been around less than dairy and sugar have. But yet these people who demonize dairy and sugar use these devices a significant amount of their day for work. And they're talking on an iPhone to tell you don't eat sugar where it's like, hey, I can just as easily be telling people don't be on an iPhone while eating sugar. And how do we know that's not the same thing? So I'm having all these thoughts about health environment and perceived stressors. But to me, I really think the perceived stressor is so relative. And we're going to talk about what makes something a perceived stressor, but just because someone on the internet is telling you sugar is bad for you. Don't eat dairy, don't eat gluten, vegetable oils are going to crush you. That doesn't, that honestly, from my experience, that creates more fear. As we've talked about in our prior episode with Bree, Bria and other people, that creates more fear and anxiety than I feel like the actual chemical stress that is caused by those foods. And just like talking on this laptop, how do we know that that's not a perceived stressor that we're not aware? How do we know that's not something in 30 years we'll look back and be like, man, that was really something we did to stress us out. Let's talk about what are these perceived perceived stressors, these sort of little T's or little traumas that could be a huge contributor to your autoimmune like symptoms. Again, not the autoimmune disease itself, because that's just a label. Label doesn't mean anything, but I'm talking about the symptoms oftentimes associated with autoimmunity. That is real. So I love this analogy. And this is everyone uses it the most. What makes something in your environment perceived to be stressful? Well, okay. So say you've never done this activity before. And those of you listening on YouTube, or thank you, those of you on podcast, it's a picture of someone skydiving. It's a picture Pretend it's a first person view of your ha- arms right in front of you. And there's another person in front of you. So there's two people skydiving. but You can only see the person in front of you because that's from the first person view. If this was your first time doing this, would you feel stressed? I imagine like seven or eight out of 10 of us are probably going to say, yeah. And there's always one or two people in a group that are just thrill seekers. These are people that can fall asleep on roller coasters. These are people that could probably fall asleep while skydiving. But anyways, if you've never been skydiving and you go, It might be a little stressful the first time, and you might be a little nervous. And part of what makes it stressful, if you've never done it before, is purely just the novelty. Anything novel, anything new is remotely stressful to our system. Why? Because it's not known. And from an evolutionary perspective, something wasn't known. Our our base level nervous system physiology goes into a new environment looking first for threat. At least that's the way we've been brought up in this world. We will talk about later on in this series, how you can get out of that looking for threat. And the reason we're looking for threat is if it's new and not known, our bias from our body is to keep us alive. And it it, does an amazing job at keeping us alive with the limbic system as an extension of the nervous system. And so when we, when we're looking for new things, something is new, we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know how to troubleshoot it. It's a, it's a brand new situation. So it's very, very stressful. And if you've never been skydiving, You don't really know. I mean, people might tell you what to expect from their experience, but still, it's not a real experience until you've experienced it. Until you've experienced it, it's a very novel environment, so it can be very, very stressful. And this next image is a picture essentially of a stock chart. So you have some red and green and yellow lines and you have some bar graphs of things going up and down, which sort of looks probably looks like all of our retirement accounts at this very moment. And what do you think if you're a stockbroker, a financial advisor, or if you actually work on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, or you are working a hedge fund? and you work in in asset management, what do you think one of the biggest sources of stress for these people is in working with the stock market? Obviously working with people's money, but what is it about working with the stock market that is so stressful? It's incredibly unpredictable. I I used to, I was a finance and economics major. I I went down so many rabbit holes of finance and investing in stocks. And what you find is that it's almost there's so much randomness. And even now with all the artificial intelligent trading and all the high level algorithmic trading models that take place, there's still so much randomness with why stock was up, why stock was down, why the market as a whole goes up, why the market as a whole goes down. I think I remember reading a stat that if you tried to time the market and you missed the five biggest high days of the year, you'd have missed like 90% of the gains for that year. And same thing, if you had tried to time the market to sell, at a high point, you'd have missed like most of the lows. So that's why people just like, just keep your money in the market year round because if you try and time it, there's so much. It's probably one of the more unpredictable markets or more unpredictable events in our life. And that's incredibly stressful because if it's unpredictable, our system doesn't know what to expect. So it's almost an extension off of this idea of novelty. So unpredictable, so we have novelty one and unpredictability two make things very stressful on our system. They're external environments whether it's something new like skydiving or something unpredictable like the stock market. That's the external environment. Our internal physiology, our nervous system perceives these things as very, very stressful. Again, we'll talk about in future episodes ways you can mitigate that stress and take novelty and take unpredictability and actually sort of make it fun. Now, obviously, if you make a living based on unpredictability, bit of a different question. And I'm probably not the best person to help you answer that question. That's the second. one. Third one. Let's play a little video here. And it's a video of a snake sort of coiling and sort of moving around with its mouth wide open. For those of you watching on the podcast. And so, if you are a person who doesn't like snakes and is afraid of snakes, and you even see a video of a snake sort of moving around and having its mouth open, having its tongue, how do you think you're going to feel? Or if you're someone who, go to the next video, you're at a job interview. And you get fired or maybe you're, excuse me, not at a job interview and get fired. That would be crazy. But say you're working at a company and you've been there for 10, 15 years and you just get fired out of nowhere. I mean, I mean, how are you going to feel, right? You're going to feel, let me pause it here. You're going to feel incredibly threatened. If you're afraid of the snake and the snake is coming at you, you're going to feel threatened for your life. But a lot of times our nervous system sees that threat the same as the threat. If someone fires us, if we get fired from our job, it's very threatening it's very threatening because in our job, our income provides for a family that providing for the family means the roof over the head, food on the table, utility bills on. So we feel very threatened almost as if our life is threatened because that income we've been so accustomed to is no longer coming in. So in the same way, a snake coming at us can be very threatening on our actual life. Losing a job can be just as threatening to the nervous system. Again, the nervous system doesn't know the difference between snake with fangs and job got fired, can't provide for family. It just knows the feeling that associated with those things. So they're equally threatening. So the number three thing that leads to a huge perceived stressor that could drive autoimmunity is any event that is threatening to you. I always use the example to my patients as well. If someone cuts you off in traffic, it's very threatening, right? As if you wanna know how someone acts, if you really wanna know what someone is like under pressure, see what happens when someone cuts them off in traffic. Are they a middle finger person? are they a follow that person and just look for a chance to just wave their fist at them or do they just sort of center themselves and realize, hey, maybe that person in front of me is having a really, really tough day and I'm not gonna make my day become as tough as theirs and I'm just gonna you know, hope and pray that their tough day figures itself out. The fourth thing that can be an incredibly stressful, perceived stress is how does it feel if it seems like that your symptoms happen randomly, if it seems like there's no rhyme or reason I, I see this from people all the time. I'll ask them, you know, what, what makes your symptoms better? What makes them worse? What things happen? And a lot of times they're like, you know, I don't really know. Sometimes it's like playing restaurant. Sometimes I have a great bowel movement day. Sometimes they flare. Sometimes I have great energy. Sometimes I don't. And I can't really pinpoint what's causing what. And in my experience, that that's what it's felt like personally for me. I have I never could really tell if it was a specific food or a specific environment or a specific chemical or a specific event or a specific person. I never could tell very many specifics because there's, there's so many variables going on that it's, it's really hard to determine which one it is. And the reason that that's so stressful is because we feel like we can't control it. If, if the symptoms happen on this random nature and we feel like we have no control, like if, if you knew, hey, gluten bothers me, say we'll use that for example, as probably the most common thing I hear from people is gluten, dairy, added sugar, some effect of those flare me or bother me. If you knew that if your mind if your brain if your neural circuitry believes that which we'll talk about again why that belief is probably making things worse. If that's what you believe, you probably you believe that so you have some semblance of control over the environment. What do I mean by that? If you believe gluten bothers your stomach, the easy way for you not to have stomach issues and to control your stomach issues is to not eat gluten. Now you have control. But if you don't know, if you feel like things happen so randomly and you've been, you haven't been able to pick up on any causations or correlations while your symptoms happen, you feel like you have no control and that is very stressful on the nervous system. And that's almost a, a, a derivative of unpredictability. So we have the four things that really make something in your external environment perceived as stressful. Number one is novelty. Remember, if it's new, if you've never gone skydiving, go skydiving, that's stressful. Number two, if it's unpredictable, think about that guy who works or that gal who works in the the stock market on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, waving the paper around, wearing those fancy blue coats. I don't even know how many people do that for a living anymore. Number two. Number three, something is threatening. There's an animal charging at you. If you get an email that you don't like, if you get fired, all those are very threatening to the nervous system. And number four, if things happen randomly and you feel like you can't control things, That's incredibly stressful. I feel like uh, where this manifests most for me, this lack of control, and it used to, is flying. I always, I I used to have incredible amounts of flight anxiety because I felt like it was the situation in my life where I had the least amount of control. You know, the the flat, the seatbelt sign comes on until you can't get up, which in my brain goes, oh my gosh, I can't use the bathroom. I'm gonna have to sit here and hold my urine and my stool until I get up or like, "I I can't get more water. I can't get up and move around. I feel so confined and I feel like I can't control it when in, when what I actually was led to realize is I have 100% control over that. I have 100% control over my nervous system and my brain's response to that environment. I don't have control over the external environments. And that's a, a huge theme of life that I'll talk about in a second, is yes, we don't have control. We don't have control over someone else's response, the external factors, but you have 100% control over what happens internally. And it is the internal response to the external stressor that really dictates what happened. So you can have a stressor, but if your internal response is one of calm, relaxation, restoration, love, acceptance, you will feel in complete control regardless of what's happening in the external. All right, so let's give some helpful tips. What are some potential antidotes to these four forms of stress? Well, I just talked about this one, to release control of the output. I have this expression as a, as a, as a Christian, as a, as a strong man in my faith, I've had this little mantra to myself of, hey, you control the input, but let God control the outputs. And to me, that's been very freeing to know that I will cha- I can change my effort, my intensity, my input into situations. And I, I don't need to worry. I don't need to fret because God's got the output. God's got the output under control. So if you release control of the output, and you see this with people all the time, people that are goal-oriented. They only care about the output. Society rewards them because maybe they do well in academics, athletics, or other various mm-hmm. achievements. But what happens when they don't hit that goal we've all known the stories of people who had great potential who missed a goal or who didn't win a particular event and then they absolutely spiraled because they felt like they needed to have such control of the output that they lost control over their own inputs and then again it's the inputs it's being that systems and process oriented It's the guy who who loves to fish rather than the guy who loves to catch the fish you just love the process of getting better To me, that's, that's very synonymous with releasing control of the output. Dictate the input. You have control over that, but the output will fall where it falls. I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of peace in that, in that decision, but I did not for a very long time. And it's still something that I struggle with, but just begin to think about that in your mind of that the output is outside of your control. So whether it's a health environment, whether it's you go into a restaurant and what ingredients are used, that's sort of out of your control. But what is in control is your internal response to the external factor exactly what I just said, take control of the input, take control of your mind, say you're at a restaurant, and you're fearful that they might put a particular ingredient or a vegetable oil or added sugar, that fear, that being that feeling of threat is coming from within. So that fear is keeping you in this box. But if you sort of start to train your mind into thinking, hey, I was made brilliantly resilient in the image of God and the image of Christ. And because of that, I can probably handle dang near any food, I've even heard stories of people with anaphylactic reactions to food previously who through mental and brain healing and brain retraining have been able to reintroduce foods they've previously been allergic to. I'm not even talking sensitivity. I'm talking true allergy. That's fascinating. And that tells you the power the mind can have. And the beauty of the mind is we control that. We have control over our mind's in- input into the external So, We've had a restaurant. Don't focus on the food ingredients. Focus on eating with loved ones eating with family, smile, laugh, speak with your hands, look people directly in the eye, all these things that activate. It's called our, our social engagement system. It, it's, shout out the polyvagal theory. If you've never read that book, fascinating book. It, it sort of breaks free from this idea of parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. There's actually a different state of the parasympathetic system. And there's a couple states of the vagus nerve, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Anyways, take control of the input and release control of the output. Number three, understand the situation will improve, AKA time heals. I'm sure all of us out there have heard that phrase. I remember hearing it for the first time when you would get in a fight with a friend, a childhood friend. And my, I remember my parents would say, hey, you know what, time heals. And they were right. I mean, it's crazy how when you're 11 and you get in a fight with one of your friends and then six, not even six, maybe six weeks go by and you're, completely hanging out, maybe sometimes even six days at that age, because it's just you allow time, you allow space, you allow time and space for your nervous system to understand, hey, like that situation, that really wasn't threatening to me. I, I love this person, I enjoy hanging out with this person. And we have the same goal here. So and even if take it to the modern if you have food sensitivities, if you have debilitating fatigue, if you think your symptoms won't change, then they probably won't. So you need to have the belief you need to have the belief. Again, look up the milkshake study. If you want to see actual physiological and scientific proof of the belief effect, look up the milkshake study. It's fascinating. It's done out at Stanford, but you need to understand, you need to believe that time will heal. You need to believe that your situation will improve. You need to have hope that your situation will improve. I saw something somewhere that says hope is not a strategy. I think that's BS. Hope is a fantastic strategy. I think hope is probably one of the only strategies we truly have. Understand your situation will improve and that time will heal. You need to believe that. that, that that's a prerequisite. Uh, number four, a possible a potential antidote to these stressors is to rationalize it. So use that prefrontal cortex, that God-given prefrontal cortex to, for logic and critical thinking and for reason. And I'll you, take, use an example of myself. When I was at my probably most anxious of flying, I either read this or someone told me about it, like, hey, you ever look at the stats in flying? And I was like, no. And, and they, they didn't tell me them, which was actually, I'm glad they didn't. They said, go look it up. Because once you, once you see it, it's truth for you. If you just hear it from someone else, you're like, yeah, I don't know. But if you hear it, if you go read it, then it's truth. So I went and I looked it up. And I remember reading that statistically, it, I, I, I should remember the exact number. But it was an astronomical amount more safe to fly than it was to drive. And then I remember thinking, why am I so anxious of flying when I only do it three to five times a year? And I drive three to five times a day. That's completely irrational when I understand that I'm actually safer in a plane than I am a car, yet I continue to get in a car three to five times a day. That's actually, that has always been my thing whenever someone says they, they have trust issues. I'm like, really, you have trust issues? Do you trust that someone else is gonna stop at a red light? You do, or else you wouldn't get in your car. So, sorry, if, if I offended anyone out there who feels that they have trust issues, those are real in the context of relationships, but really in life, you have to have some aspect of trust because you your trust you are gonna be safe when you walk out of your front door. Some people don't, and that's a pretty debilitating condition, but rationalization. So whether that's, I mean, if you look at, I remember looking up once the stats on anaphylactic reactions is like 0.003, percent of people, it's it's incredibly small. So sometimes looking up numbers, being more informed, sometimes from my experience, being informed is probably the least effective, but it can be helpful. Number five, potential antidote, faith and. This builds off the third point of understanding the situation will improve or having belief that time will heal is without faith, what do we have? And I'm not gonna get into, um, I'm, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a pastor. I just work with people in their health and wellness one-on-one for a living. And I see it, what happens when people lose faith. I have a question on our intake form that says, do you believe your body will heal? And essentially what I'm asking is, do you have faith? And most people say yes. And because most people say, yes, most people long-term are going to be okay. I've had a couple of people and they stick out to my mind and I, I pray and I, I feel for them every day who said no, that they didn't believe their body could heal. And they didn't have faith. And I really, I have a lot of compassion for these people because when you lose faith in your body's ability to heal, when you lose faith in general, what more do you have? If you don't have faith, what are we reduced to? We're reduced almost to an animal and to just someone who just eats, sleeps, it's almost a child, like a a child doesn't necessarily, it's funny when you think about when do we start to develop the need to have faith? I imagine when you're three months old, you, you might have faith. I mean, again, it's weird to think that a three-year-old will never know or three-month-old will never know what it's like to be three months old because a three-month-old can't articulate. Well, also here's a, here's a fun fact. No one will ever know what it's like to be born. Why? Because a newborn can't articulate, yeah, this is what it was like in the womb for, for however for however many weeks. This is what it was like to come out of the vaginal canal, hopefully. And this is what it was like to try breast milk for the first time. You know, no no one will be able to articulate that, which is crazy. That's a sidebar. But when these, when these people would answer our questionnaire and say they didn't believe their body can heal, I just, I felt for them. And it was almost, at that point, it was a non-negotiable that I don't know if I can help them. I don't know if I can help them until they believe that they can heal. I can, I can, I can try and instill belief in them, but until it clicks in them, until it's truth for them, it will never be truth. So you have to have faith that your situation can improve, that it can heal. And if nothing else have that. And then once you have faith, all these other things, whether it's understanding that time is going to heal, understanding that you can control the output or the input, and that the output will fall where it falls. Understanding that numbers can be helpful and rationalization is helpful. All stem from the most foundational one, which is why I put it on the bottom, that faith faith in healing faith in your body you were made by our creator by god to be so resilient and so capable of healing and have faith in your body to be able to break free from food sensitivities chemical sensitivities fatigue insomnia brain fog constipation have faith in your body and in your abilities and in your mind that you can heal from this situation now i thank you guys for tuning into this episode if no one's told you everyone always says to like comment subscribe or whatever social media platform you're listening to this on do do any of the things that help this podcast this video grow because people say it all the time but it's just so gosh darn true that the more people listen the more people like more people share the more people comment the algorithms and we don't know how they work but generally that's what we believe is that the more engagement something gets the more the algorithm puts it out out puts it up to to be higher the more people can hear this message and if you benefit from this message please let me know and In future tips, we're going to talk about more specific tactics you can employ, more specific habits, more specific behaviors that can be helpful for you to break free from this thyroid symptom cycle and regain the life you know that you deserve. Thank you all for trusting me to be a part of your day's experience. If you enjoyed the show and found it informative or maybe entertaining, I invite you to share the love by leaving the rating you think I'm deserving of on your podcast platform of choice or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you do all the things. Like, comment, and subscribe if you care to see me ramble any more than you already did today. And for more free content and guides, you can check out my clinic website at www.hivenaturalhealth, all one word, forward slash free dash resources. And until next time, my friends, trust in your gut.